Hello and welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, part of the Informed Traveler radio show, which is heard each week on Chorus Radio. It's a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. On our show this week, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the attacks on September 11th. So we're going to head to the Flight 93 National Memorial in Pennsylvania to learn about the incredible story of United Airlines Flight 93, those on board, and visiting the memorial itself. So we'll do that later in the podcast. Plus, we've invited David Yeskel, otherwise known as the Cruise Guru, back to the podcast. He just got back from a 14-day cruise on the Seabourn Odyssey. So we'll get some insight on what it's like to take a cruise these days. But first, there's a new bus company that just started up in Alberta offering daily service between Edmonton and Calgary with a stop in Red Deer. It's called the Canada Bus, and joining us now to tell us more about it is the operations manager and owner of the Canada Bus, Satinder Singh. The website is thecanadabus.com. Hi, Satinder. Hi, Randy. Tell me about the Canada Bus. Yeah, actually, this is a people basic need. That's why we want to start it because I'm in travel business almost 20 years. Sometime we face that Calgary to Edmonton on last minute, or uh, I think for week before when people wants to book their airline tickets, it's very expensive. And uh, so we think that sometime uh, before we was thinking that we will do the. Uh, airport transfer, Calgary Edmonton, Edmonton Airport transfer, then we think that, no, we, we should go further. That's why we, we start normal passenger service. In 2018, Greyhound is uh, is out of Canada. Then we are thinking that we should add one more option to the customer for Calgary Edmonton run. Uh, and it's interesting you call it the Canada bus. That implies that at some point you will be, uh, other than uh, running uh, service through Alberta, correct? True. But we are thinking to add more routes in future, like uh, we are thinking to run from Calgary to Banff and Calgary, Kelowna, Vancouver. But uh, it's everything is in pipeline. Most probably we will start our Banff Canmore run soon. We are waiting for some uh, paperwork should be done soon or uh, sooner. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what are the current routes now? You mentioned Calgary to Edmonton stopping in Red Deer, uh, but uh, where are the stops in Calgary and in Edmonton? I'm looking on your website, thecanadabus.com. Uh, I see that one of the stops, both in Edmonton and Calgary, is at the airport, which is very handy for rural customers that might be in central Alberta that can use Red Deer as a hub. Yeah, true. And actually, we are starting from Calgary Delta Downtown Hotel. Then we are coming to Whitehorn LRT Station. Our next stop is Cross Iron Mill on gate number two. In Red Deer, we are using Travel Lodge Hotel. It's near to the Red Deer College, so easy commute for the students to get in the bus. And uh, our next stop is is Edmonton Airport. Then our next stop is Southgate LRT in Edmonton. And the last stop is Kingsway. LRT station. So basically, we want to use LRT station and easy access for everybody who's driving car, who is not driving car, who is taking bus, so anybody can use the bus easily. Mm-hmm. And same now, the route coming from Edmonton to Calgary, kind of in reverse, but you do make the stop at the Calgary airport after the Cross Iron Mills run, right? Yes, we do. Uh, makes it very handy. Well, I guess it depends on when your flight is leaving because uh, you only have one one bus running right now. Do you plan on adding extra service between Edmonton and Calgary? We are thinking to uh, actually we have more requests for early morning 
run. Mm -hmm. So basically, we will uh, change the time. Now we are thinking that uh, in end of September or mid of September, we will change the time and our bus will leave around 7.30 a.m. in the morning. So people can reach to their work on time on time, people and, and students can join their college on time. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the overall experience like on board now? Yeah, actually, we are pretty new in this business, but uh, we got very good response, and uh, people really like it. On first run, I was on the bus. I talked with the people, how they like it. Everybody likes it. So what do you offer? Do you offer, like, is there complimentary uh, uh, beverages? We have big bus. Uh, we have 56-seater bus, reclining seats, free Wi-Fi, and water bottle service, and washroom on, in the bus. Now, can, if I, can I bring a snack on board or uh, yes. food and that people, sort of thing? Yeah, 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 people can bring their snacks, their food on the bus. There's no issue. Excellent. Well, it sounds like a great service. Uh, I'm, I imagine people will be uh, waiting for your ex expanded service to Canmore and Banff. Uh, any timeline on that at all? I know you mentioned it soon. <laughs> Waiting for yes, paperwork, yes. which could be, <laughs> you never know, right? So basically, I think uh, in mid of September, yeah, we will start it. All right. Well, good. The uh, website is thecanadabus.com, and Satinder Singh is the operations manager and owner of the Canada Bus. Well, good luck in the uh, bus business, and I'm looking forward to more routes being offered. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Well, it's been a while since we chatted about cruising with David Yeskel, otherwise known as the cruise guru. We just got back from a cruise on board the Seabourn Odyssey. So David joins us now to give us an idea on what it's like to take a cruise these days. You can follow his updates on Twitter at Cruise Guru. Hi, David. Hey, Randy. Refresh my memory. Is this your first pandemic-era cruise? This is my first pandemic ever cruise, first <laughs> cruise in about 17 months, but who's counting? <laughs> well, <laughs> if, if your life is cruising, you're probably counting. <laughs> I am. I so am. just uh, give us an overview of the ship, the itinerary, and then we'll talk about the process of getting on board uh, during the pandemic era, as I like yeah. to call it. Yeah. So this was Seaborne Odyssey. Um, Seaborne Cruises, as you know, is a tip-top luxury operator. Um, they started up sailing July 18th in the Caribbean round trip from Barbados. So this is a little different. They start in Barbados so they can get deeper into the Caribbean to some of these smaller ports that their ship can get into that their larger ships can't get to, you know, like St. Mm -hmm. Lucia, St. Kitts, St. Uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So it starts in Barbados, so it's a little harder to get there, but uh, but once you're there, it's great. And, and and Seaborn's onboard product is incredible, gourmet cuisine, great service, um, top-shelf alcohol included, gratuities included. It's really a, uh, they call it a casually elegant atmosphere, uh, and I would agree with that. It feels great aboard, um, high-touch service. It's just a nearly flawless cruise experience, frankly. <laughs> Very nice. I've never been on a seaborne ship, but uh, you mentioned briefly about Barbados, and that's where the, sh the cruise started. And I would think uh, these days the process of just getting to the, uh, the port, especially for us landlocked people, um, mm -hmm. with the COVID protocols, and then getting on board. So just uh, give us a run-through of how that was like. 
Yeah, so I'll give you the short version of that story. Um, I started viewing the Visit Barbados site a few weeks before the cruise, of course, and it's 13 pages long. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Protocols specifically described, very carefully prescribed, detailed protocols, what type of test you need to get, deep a deep nasal swab PCR given by a health professional, processed by an accredited lab, um, taken within 24, between 24 and 72 hours before you arrive on the island. You have to upload your vaccination, your proof of vaccination to this app that there's a Barbados app called BIMSAFE. Hmm. All this has to be in the app before you leave. Um, once you arrive in the airport, all that's checked again. Your QR code is scanned that you get on the app. And then you're put into three groups. There's a group that's either going to a hotel overnight before the cruise, in which case you're tested again at the airport, and then have to quarantine at the hotel prior to um, being being let out of the hotel, essentially. <laughs> and, and then the other group, which we were in, was going directly to the ship from the airport. So you don't need to be retested, but they put you in what's called a sterile corridor. And what that is, each family unit, so just my family, was sent in a taxi with a fully vaccinated and tested driver. Um, Everybody masked to get to the port. Once at the port, it's another like three layers that you have to go through, Bahamian health authorities, I'm sorry, Barbadian health authorities, who then check your documents again, passport, um, vaccine certificate, test result. Then Seaborn takes over inside the terminal. They beefed up their medical staff, two doctors, three nurses, check all that again. And at the end of it, what's really funny is they ask, oh, yeah, and let's see your passport. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what was once our most important travel document has now been relegated to third-tier status. <laughs> it's no longer important. <laughs> no longer as important. But, but, and once you get aboard, once you get through all that, Randy, and I can tell you it's not easy and it's stress-producing, once you get aboard, and I can tell you, this was the safest place I've been in a year and a half. It was wow. incredible. So it was worth Guests, it then, all those checkpoints. It was worth it. It was worth it. Guests took off their masks on board. Um, the only thing different on board, actually, was that crew were all masked. And that is just Seaborne company policy as an extra added you know, measure of protection. But mm. there's 100% vaccination for crew, 100% vaccination for passengers mandate. And crew were all aboard for two months prior to when any passengers arrived. So, so they're uh, they're keeping it really safe, and they create this bubble on board, this safety bubble that everybody feels great about. Now, what do they do as far as uh, shore excursions and things like that? I mean, you can control what's on the on board the ship, but once you let people off, and how accommodating were the islands that you went to? Yeah, so so they manage to maintain the safety bubble when they're ashore. Here's how they do it. Rather than being able to explore independently, which we all like to do, you know, Mm -hmm. take a taxi, go to a beach, go shopping, unfortunately that type of spontaneity is, is not supported currently. They won't let us do that, at least not right now. So what we were doing is taking these organized shore excursions from the ship and a variety of excursions available in every port, typically to what, you know, typical for what's usually available, but those are also um, led by a local tour guide who's fully vaccinated and tested. Everybody's masked, and you don't mix with any other groups, any locals, any other guests once you're ashore. So your group is kept in this separate, essentially, bubble hmm. while ashore, and then they move you back to the ship safely. 
um, so as to protect the onboard ship's bubble, and and that's how they do it. So, so it is. Yes, it's a little more um, you know prescribed, but um, it's safe, and that's the way they can keep everybody aboard safe. Now, is the ship at full capacity? I don't think so. I don't think any ships are sailing at full no. capacity, are they? No, none are. So we were at reduced capacity. Um, so this ship is 460 guest capacity. They were operating below 200. So, um, so it was a, the ship was very quiet. There's always a lot of space on seaborne ships anyway, and, mm-hmm. and there were 300. There was almost a full crew complement at 355 crews. So, so I have to tell you, being outnumbered by crew was a pretty <laughs> nice thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, Seaborn's already at the top of the scale as far as luxury. Right. Now you got uh, right. more more crew crew members to serve you. More crew members to serve, and that that won't last too long. So they're keeping mm. capacity lower. They're not saying for how long. I imagine it's going to ramp up pretty quickly. Now, with all those protocols and and in your bubble, the experience overall, like like you've cruised uh, hundreds of times, uh, was it still fun? Uh, like, or was this always in the back of your mind? No, actually, because of the way we were kept so safe on board, uh, you really could let go on board. So it was fun. I mean, entertainment operated as usual. There was no social distancing aboard. Um, they, like I said, guests were not wearing masks. It just felt like, wow, we haven't experienced this for so long. And here, on board the ship right now, it's a safe place to be. And so because of that, Everybody's attitude lifted, and and it was safer, and nobody was worried. So, so I can say it was as close to a normal cruise experience as I've had in the past, except for the crew wearing masks. And, oh, and by the way, and, and breakfast and lunch in the casual restaurant, the Colonnade, were self-service. So that's something that still isn't available on some larger ships, mm-hmm. um, but it is on it is on smaller ships like Seaborn. Let's talk about the experience of Seaborn. As we mentioned, uh, they are a little bit higher in the in the scale as far as luxury. So talk about uh, the food and and some of the excursions and some of the islands you you stopped in. Yeah, they are. So the food aboard is great. It's really gourmet, uh, and they feature dishes by noted chef Thomas Keller, this U.S. chef who's very famous for his French laundry restaurant. So some of his dishes are reproduced aboard with exacting detail. And I mean, all these, what, what I call the, the, uh, the high-value culinary targets are nonstop <laughs> caviar, foie gras, all that's available, on-demand, free-flowing champagne, um, you know, lots of seafood, uh, duck, uh, gr- great culinary program. And, and the, their top shelf alcohol is great too. They pour this Montedon champagne is their house champagne. It's great. They do this crazy event called caviar in the surf on a private beach in St. Kitts where they bring you off, uh, in tenders and then uniformed officers are standing waist deep in water, in the water, with a surfboard, serving you caviar and champagne <laughs> off, off a surfboard. So if that isn't decadent, I don't know what it is. It must be quite the sight. <laughs> it is quite the sight. It is quite the sight. And, and so just they do things like that. It's like over-the-top over the top luxury. Um, we only have a few seconds, but uh, for those who are hesitant to go on a cruise, uh, what would you say to them? Yeah, so I think cruises are a pretty safe to be place to be right now, Randy. Um, most cruises, most cruise lines are operating at a full vaccine mandate. If not full, it's about ninety-five to ninety-eight percent. Um, they're doing everything they can to keep people safe. Listen, it's in their interest too. They they have to do this after the PR disaster they, mm-hmm. they suffered you know, at the beginning. And um, will there be cases on board? Yes, there will be. But the key is 
keeping that those cases from becoming an outbreak. And with the you know with full vaccination aboard of guests and crew, uh, there shouldn't be outbreaks. And, and so I, I think they're really it's, cruise cruise ships are really safe places to be. And especially now in the near term, with reduced occupancy and reduced capacity, um, they're more luxurious than ever. David Yeskel is the cruise guru. If you want to keep up to date on all the cruise news, follow him on Twitter at Cruise Guru. It's uh, always great to chat with you, David. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Well, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the attacks on September 11th. So in honor of that, I thought it would be fitting to remember the story of United Flight 93, which crashed in a field in Pennsylvania on that fateful morning. So here now to share the story of Flight 93 and to give us some insight on what it's like to visit the National Memorial Site is Stephen Clark. He's the superintendent of the National Parks in Western Pennsylvania. Hi, Stephen. Good to be with you, sir. Well, you know, uh, it is hard to believe that it's been 20 years since the attacks on September 11th. That's a whole generation that uh, wasn't around on that day. So uh, just give us a brief overview of what happened to United Flight 93 on that day. Well, you couldn't be more correct in the sense that um, roughly 75 million Americans have been born since September 11th, 2001. So, so to say that a generation plus um, uh, is is experiencing, you know, post 9/11 is is 100% true. But, you know, the the story of United Airlines Flight 93 is is one that um, when you start to peel away the layers of what makes this story so unique and why do more than 400,000 people come to this national memorial pretty much in the middle of nowhere um, in western Pennsylvania? You, have, you really have to want to come to this location. You just don't happen to you know, pass by and say, hey, let's just jump in there. But I think the reason that, that this story is so powerful is that on September 11, 2001, kind of a quick time frame, when the first plane struck the first tower at 8.46 and then the second plane at 9.03, uh, when that plane hit the second tower at 9.03 in New York, uh, United Airlines Flight 93 was, was pretty much at, uh, at cruising speed coming into uh, western Pennsylvania and then ultimately into, into Ohio. And at 9.48, the terrorists took over Flight 93 and ordered everyone to the back of the airplane. So on that plane that day uh, were a total of 37 passengers, um, five flight attendants, and two pilots. And four of those 37 passengers were the hijackers, the terrorists, all seated in first class. So at Flight 93, of course, we honored the 40. We honored the 33 passengers, the five flight attendants, and of course, the two pilots. But when you take that timeline again, Randy, back to 928, and and the pilot ordered everyone to the back of the plane. They've met our demands. We're going back to the airport. And back in 01, that was pretty typical of of a hijacking of an airliner. But then when they got to the back of the plane, when those 40 heroes arrived at the back of that plane, they started making these phone calls. 
So a total of 13 individuals made a total of 37 phone calls, talking to loved ones, 911 operators. And sir, they started to learn in real time what had happened in New York. And then when American Airlines Flight 77 struck the Pentagon at precisely 937, and they realized that and they knew that in real time, that's what galvanized them. That's when they realized this was not, uh, we weren't going back to the airport, that this was a suicide mission of some kind. And that's when they came together, they took a vote, and they decided to try and do something to take back control of the airplane. And that's exactly what they did. They, they, they boiled water. They used seat cushions as, as uh, you know, kind of shields. And they ultimately, at 9.57, made the decision to go up through that 757's main center aisle to try and get control back to the plane. And they ultimately made it to the cockpit door. And at that point, the terrorist pilot realized that they were coming in through that door and he pushed it to the right and to the left. Then he did a series of porpoising maneuvers to try and throw those heroes off balance. And then finally, right about 10.02 in 30 seconds or so, um, the terrorist pilot pushed the plane, turned the plane to the right, and that's when it lost its lift, uh, literally inverted, and then lost its lift and then crashed into this sacred field um, at 10.03 and 11 seconds. So that's, that's the timeline of, of 9-11 on that particular morning. And uh, again, the more people around the world learn of the heroes of these 40 individuals, what they were faced with, and then what they actually did, the courage that it took, I think, sir, that's why this story will continue. Uh, to to be a powerful story in American history. And I really think courage uh, around the world um, when faced with such dire circumstances. Well, I like the fact that you use the word heroes. They really are or were heroes, weren't they? You know, heroes, I think oftentimes is, is often overused. You know, they're a hero, sports player, you know, sports figures being heroes. They're not heroes. The heroes are those in the military for our great nations, protecting Canada, protecting the United States and other countries around the world, as well as our first responders. And why do we call the 40 heroes? Well, I I would state that they are just that, because where they were, where they crashed, was a mere 18 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. It's likely target the United States Capitol building, the building itself. And what was going on on a beautiful, beautiful uh, Washington, D.C. Tuesday morning on September 11, 2001, there were more than 4,000 employees inside that Capitol building. There were members of Congress, both in the Senate and the House, not to mention countless visitors that would typically be in and around the Capitol building on a Tuesday morning. So there's no doubt that the terrorist pilot had input the GPS coordinates into his uh, GPS unit, and it was going to Washington, D.C. So that's why, Randy, we believe that these 40 people really, truly did save countless lives because of their bravery and because of their actions of, again, trying to do the right thing and trying to take control back of the airplane. 
What's it like to visit the memorial now? And and you mentioned it's like a field in the middle of Pennsylvania. Uh, let's talk about yeah. the logistics of of getting there and what it's like to visit. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, like, I was going to ask you how many visitors you get, or, or 400,000, I think, is, is what you mentioned. So an incredible amount of people yeah. come to see that uh, year-round. I welcome all of our Canadian neighbors to to the north to, to when you're on vacation or, you know, going to Gettysburg or some of these other amazing places uh, here in the United States. But, um, you know, we're about two hours southeast of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we are about a half hour or so off the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the main thoroughfare from that cuts across um, Pennsylvania from east to west. And, you know, we we really do make it as easy as possible for our visitors to, to arrive. But, sir, if I could just kind of paint a picture for when you come in off of, quote, quote, Route 30, which we call Lincoln Highway, you know, you're really going to be coming into uh, a 2,200-acre memorial that was built on a, an abandoned strip mine. And so when you come in off of the road on the left or the tower of voices, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful, we like to refer to it as our welcoming beacon. And for your listeners, Randy, you can go to earthcam.com. That's one word, earthcam.com. And when you get that, uh, just type in the search bar, tower of voices. And your listeners will be able to view and listen to the Tower of Voices in real time, 24 hours a day. And since we dedicated the Tower of Voices in 2018, we've had over 3.1 million views. And it gives visitors all around the world the opportunity to embrace that Tower of Voices, which is, in essence, 93 feet high, which contains 40 wind chimes. And when you think of wind chimes, you think of your porch and that kind of a thing. But, but sir, these chimes, some of them weigh two to 300 pounds a piece. They are six, eight, and 10 feet that you can see when you go on that, that site. And they, each one is, is individually tuned. And again, it's the symbol of their voices and it's a symbol of their, their courage. And after you leave that part of the, the memorial, you drive about two miles and then you'll come to our visitor center complex. And that's where you have the, the ability to access our visitor center. You'll actually walk along the flight path, knowing that directly overhead was flight 93, again, traveling at that 563 miles an hour. And um, you can walk out to the overlook and actually look down at the crash site and really get that sense of, of awe and that beauty of, of the Western Pennsylvania rural countryside, it's, it just takes your breath away. And, and then you can go into the visitor center and, and go through the exhibit. Um, again, a lot of powerful audio visual exhibits. And then uh, if you're so inclined, you can do a two and a half mile loop hike. You can walk or take a shortcut about a half a mile uh, hike, or you can drive. And where you would drive is down to what we call the plaza or to the wall of names. And, and for our 10 year anniversary in 2011, we dedicated the plaza or the wall of names where the actual sacred ground is located. And the impact site is marked by a 17 ton sandstone boulder. And that marks again, the impact site of uh, flight 93. And there it's, it's a very, very sacred place, the most uh, sacred on, on, on the 2,200 acres. Um, but the Wall of Names, again, uh, when you Google that, 
uh, 40 individual panel, marble panels with their names etched. And it's, again, it's just a part of and an element of the memorial that's just very, very special, very unique, and uh, an integral part of uh, the memorial as a whole. Uh, it must be very, uh, a very moving experience. So what's, what's the feedback been like from your, your visitors and from the families of those who are on Plate 93? Yeah. Well, sir, I, I uh, being a superintendent here for the last six years or so, I've I've come to know many of the family members, and and so many have become friends and and mentors, helping me, um, you know, mold my decisions. Uh, at times, not always easy, uh, oftentimes challenging with the many different aspects and facets to things, but uh, the families pay it play a very intricate role here um, at Flight 93. You know, to your point, it's, it is. There's a lot of laughing here, and you may say, well, how could there be laughing? Well, it's because our rangers and our ambassadors, our volunteers, as we call them ambassadors, you know, they do tell the story, as I've been sharing over the last few moments. But we also talk a lot about who they were uh, when they were with us here on Earth, and, and a lot of the funny stories that families have okayed for us to talk you know, things like that. And, and so there's a lot of joy and a lot of pride. But as, I, as you can imagine, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of tears here. Mm-hmm. But um, when people come, they're not really sure what to expect. Is, will there be a hole in the ground? Will there be a part of the plane? But our goal in the National Park Service, our mission, and it has been since 1916, and when this park was established back in 2002, is to give an understanding and an appreciation to our visitors when they come here, but most importantly, when they leave, they leave with a piece of themselves here at the memorial and truly embracing the courage that, uh, that these 40 amazing people had. And, and uh, ultimately, no, they didn't want to die that day. You know, they wanted to go home to their families and tuck their kids into bed. Mm-hmm. But that's not how things uh, uh, ended. But, uh, but they, went, they, they tried valiantly, and they really went to um, every measure to try and take back that aircraft. Once again, they just ran out of time. It's the Flight 93 National Memorial, part of the National Park Service in the U.S. Uh, you can find more info on the National Park Service website, nps.gov. And Stephen Clark, an amazing storyteller, uh, is also the superintendent of the National Parks of Western Pennsylvania. Uh, thanks for your time, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Sir, it's been my pleasure and my honor. Thank you so much. And that is this week's Informed Traveler podcast. Remember, this is the podcast version of the Informed Traveler radio show heard each week on Chorus Radio. You can find more information on the show at our website at theinformedtraveler.ca. So thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. And if you want to drop me a line, my email is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler. Or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.